0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This podcast features Will Haygood at St. Paul Public Library, Rondo. Rondo. African-American historian Will Haygood made waves in 2008 with the publication of a feature in the Washington Post titled A Butler Well-Served By This Election. It profiled the life and service of Eugene Allen, a White House butler who worked under eight presidents over the course of 34 years. It is the inspiration behind the Lee Daniels movie of the same name, starring Oprah Winfrey and Forest Whitaker. In 2013, as a tie in to the Hollywood film, Haygood fleshed out Allen's story into a New York Times best selling biography, The Butler, A Witness to History. Haygood has also penned biographers of African American luminaries, including musician Sammy Davis Jr., boxer Sugar Ray Robinson, and Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Haygood's new book, Tigerland, tells the remarkable untold story of baseball and basketball teams at a poor, black, segregated high school in Ohio. The Tigers both won high-profile state championships and made national headlines in 1968 to 69 against the backdrop of escalating racial tensions.
1: This is a book, you know, that's about sports, the spine of the story is a dual sports story, but it's really about much more than you know, than just sports. It's a book about America in about 1968, 1969, about all the blood and the pain on American streets. But like I said, the spine of it is, is that it's this great astonishing sports story sort of in the vein of, and I guess, Hoosiers and uh, Remember the Titans and and Friday Night Lights. I would love to open the the talk to share with you a story about my own sports glory as it relates to my life. Uh, But there is no such story that exists. (laughs) I did play on the high school varsity basketball team, but I set the bench. I never played, and all players who never play always blame it on their coach and say that they had a crazy coach. But I really did have a crazy coach because he didn't play me. But I loved the game of basketball, and I, um, I had the nerve to try out for the junior varsity basketball team at Miami University in Ohio. And astonishingly, I made the team. I made the junior varsity basketball team, which is a long leap from sitting the bench and never being a star in high school. But I also set the bench on the junior varsity basketball team, although, I broke out of a scoring slump against Ball State University and scored four points. My career ended after I had knee surgery my sophomore year. And I was quite heartbroken because I just knew I was going to the New York Knicks. You know, I, you know, I don't know where this sort of confidence, <clears throat> where it came from, but. So anyway, fast forward all these years later, many, many, many years later, in this past uh, August, uh, I was invited to homecoming, to the homecoming football game at my, at my alma mater, Miami. And by the school president, Gregory Crawford, and the athletic director, David Saylor. And I was up in the press box sitting, watching the game, and it got close to halftime, and they they told me that I would be needed down on the football field at halftime because there was going to be uh, something special that was going to happen. I had no idea what they were talking about. Anyway, I went down to the football field at halftime and the game was on ESPN by the way so that was a real big deal. And then the athletic director said, uh, Will, in honor of Tiger Land and in honor of your writing uh, uh, writing career, you are about to receive an award. And some people brought out a an easel and there was something under the easel, but it was wrapped up and I couldn't see it. And it was draped, of course, in something dark and they took the cover off and then they unwrapped it. And uh, it was the most gorgeous red and white varsity letter jacket (laughs) that you would ever see. I mean, so all those years later, Will Haygood, who was on the junior varsity, received a varsity letter jacket from Miami University. I can't wait till it gets cold in Washington DC where I live. I'm going to strut up and down the street wearing my varsity letter jacket. Um, I must be the most honored, undistinguished athlete in the history of Miami, Uh, but it's a lovely thing and I'm quite happy uh, with it. There are two teams in this book and there is an all black high school. It shouldn't have been all black because the high school doors opened in the uh, fall of 1968 which would have been 14 years after the Thurgood Marshall NAACP Brown v. Board of Education ruling which should have integrated the American public school system but it did not because of so much, so much chicanery on the part of various city governments all around the country to keep school systems segregated. Um, there was a lot of pain as the doors opened onto this all black high school in Columbus because many leaders of the city wondered if East High being all black was going to and explode because of the pain in, uh, around the deaths of. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy. But they had an amazing, an amazing school principal by the name of Jack Gibbs, who went to Ohio State University. Yes, he he was a Buckeye. Jack Gibbs, uh, he played for the legendary football coach Woody Hayes. Jack Gibbs came off the bench in a game against Michigan. He was a bench warmer, so he was and immediately warmed to my heart. Uh, But he came off the bench in 1954. Of all years, 1954. Look at these connections Uh, and made a crucial interception against, of all teams, Michigan, and helped Ohio State win the game and they went on to the Rose Bowl that year. Um, And Jack Gibbs was something of a legend, it's all black school, had never had a black principal, and Jack Gibbs became their uh, first black principal. That's the, uh, you know, that's the front side of the story. But the back side of the story is about a 13-year-old kid whose mother had five children. Her father had just left. The mother lived with her parents the siblings' grandparents. And the mother wanted to live in her own dwelling and the only place she could afford was an apartment on the segregated east side. And it was a public housing uh, unit. And that's where little Will Haygood landed in the summer of 1968. And the first images that he had uh, that summer were uh, tanks, National Guard tanks surrounding the neighborhood, uh, and soldiers with guns that they would readily point right at you because the neighborhood and the businesses uh, were in uproar. Uh, and it was hard to sleep for this little kid with his, his mother and siblings there, because it all seemed unsettling and very dangerous. It was no way for a little kid uh, to grow up in this country, but that's what time it was. And yet there also was a flip side, another flip side, and that was little Will Heygood would go to the playground and he would see people like Roy Hickman who lived above a bar, uh, and uh, he was one of the stars of the 1968-69 East High School basketball team, and Roy Hickman would let little skinny Will Haygood shoot baskets with him, and then there was the guy on the cover of this book, Dwight, Pete Lamar, who lived on the north side of the city, and I had seen him as a smaller kid even, but in the 11th grade at Columbus North High School, he led the city league in scoring. He was a phenomenal basketball player, but he had one of those gigantic Colin Kaepernick afros. And that look frightened some people. And so when the coach got to the tournament for North High, he told Dwight Lamar that he would have to cut his Afro because there were some boosters who thought that that was a militant look. And Dwight Lamar said to the coach, no, it's not coach. It is just a black is beautiful look. And my grades are good. I've never missed school all year and I lead the city league in scoring and we won our first tournament game. Things are good, coach, and the coach said nope, nope, nope. That Afro to me and to Boosters represents militancy. So get it cut or else. Now eight of the 12 basketball players, their mothers had come north from the segregated south. Lucy Lamar, the mother, of Dwight Lamar, sat and listened to her son. Tell her that he had to get his afro cut or else he was gonna be kicked off of the basketball team. And Lucy Lamar, a maid, looked her son in the eye and said, I did not leave the segregated South for this family to come north and lose its dignity. Do not cut your afro, we'll figure something out. The next day, the coach who was white at this high school kicked Dwight and Lamar off the team. It was a stunning story in the city. It was in the newspapers. Nobody understood it. Uh, And so he was suddenly without a team to play on. That summer, he ran into Jack Gibbs again and the principal at East High School. And Jack Gibbs said, Dwight, we've heard what happened, it was awful. Of course, I cannot say anything to you. I can't tamper. But I could tell you this, if your mother would happen to find someplace to live on the East Side, and my (laughs) God, we would love to welcome you to the East High Tiger student body. Mrs. Lamar had $90 in the bank and rent in the public housing where she suddenly looked for an apartment which was $33 a month. Two days before school, she moved to the east side of the city. Um, and they started out winning, first five games, then 10 games. What was amazing about this all-black school is that both the baseball team and the basketball team had two astonishingly big-hearted, wonderful white coaches. And they each had their own story. Bob Hart was the basketball coach. Bob Hart landed at Normandy in World War II. Landed at Normandy and survived Normandy in World War II. After the war, he came back to college. He went to a little school called Ohio Wesleyan University near Columbus. He had seen things in the war that shook him up. His thesis, his senior year in college was titled The Unfair Treatment of the Negro Soldier in World War II. At Ohio Wesleyan, he handed in his thesis. I was able to track it down. Here is a little bit from the book. This is what the home from war soldier with the social conscience wrote in his paper, handed in to his professor on February 18, 1946. I am convinced that the Negro has possibilities for development equal to anything we whites have. I am convinced that if given the chance, the whole Negro race can become one of our greatest assets. To do anything to deprive them of this possibility is to deprive the world of some of its greatest culture. I am convinced that the only answer to the race problem, the only hope for an undivided America, the only possible program from a cultural viewpoint is equal rights for black and white in the opening up of our institutions to the development of the Negro. Just imagine, he wrote that in 1946. So when Bob Hart went to Columbus to get a job, and there was an opening at All Black East High School, some of his white teacher friends told him not to take the job, the neighborhood's dangerous, and you don't want your daughters over there. And Bob Hart told them, nope, that is exactly the job I want. And he took it. And they were 5-0 and they were 10-0 and then they were 15-0 and they get to the state tournament and they play a team called Toledo Libby. Many sportscasters had said If there is one team that can stop the East High Tigers, it is Toledo Libby. And uh, this is a little section of the game. Now they're in the state tournament, and East High, uh, in order to win and stay in the tournament and have a shot at the state championship, they they have to beat Toledo Libby which is a very tough team, and uh, here's a little section that I write about about this game, East High and Toledo Libby. At the end of the fast-moving first quarter, East held a six-point lead, 21-15. At the end of the first half, it was East High 35, Libby 30. But there was something about Libby that caught the eyes of all of the reporters. They appeared quite poised. They did not seem at all rattled. Libby had not made a single substitution during the first half of play and displaying an iron-like stamina. Abe Stewart, on his way to 25 points, was having his way with the East High Tigers, scoring inside and out. As the third quarter drew to a close, the East fans grew restless. Libby was furiously nipping at the small Tiger lead. With five minutes left in the quarter, the game was tied, 40-40. When the buzzer sounded, the Libby fans sprang up from their seats in jubilation. Their team had overtaken East High with a 48-46 lead. In the huddle, Burt Spice, the Toledo Libby coach, asked if any of his players needed a rest. Not a single one said they did. That was what he wanted to hear. They were all seniors. They were players he had known and coached for a long time. He was gonna let them stay on the court until they ran East High into the ground or off the court. He had gotten oh so close to a championship title back in 1966, he damn sure didn't want this game to get away from his team. In the fourth quarter, the lead seesawed again. East High's Roy Hickman went up for a shot, was fouled, and his shot went in, sent to the free throw line Hickman made the shot, and the score was now East 61, Libby 57. Mayor Brenner was beside himself, whooping and hollering amid the Tiger fans. He had enough sense to know what everyone seemed to know. This game was going right down to the wire. Ed Trail Libby's guard was fouled. He slipped in a free throw. Then two Libby players, Stewart and Houston, scored two points apiece, and Libby was suddenly back in the lead. 62-61. East High's Bo Lamar told himself he had to do something. As soon as he got the ball again and saw an opening, he was going to shoot. He did and missed. Libby grabbed the rebound. Then the Libby coach immediately yelled for a timeout. With one minute 40 seconds left in the game and Libby up by a single point, East High Tiger fans could barely breathe. As play resumed, many imagined Libby would try to get the ball to Abe Stewart, its star, which was exactly the plan their coach had outlined during the timeout. But East High's Larry Walker stole the inbound pass. He caught sight of his teammate and and Bo Pete Lamar, and scooped the ball over, the, over to him. Bo bolted for the basket, lofted a shot, scored, and was fouled. East High Tigers fans and their cheerleaders erupted. Bo stepped to the free throw line and calmly sank the shot. The score now, 64-62, East High up by two points. Libby got the ball, but was called for traveling, so the ball was turned over to the Tigers. Bob Hart of East caught a timeout. There was now one minute, 10 seconds on the clock. In the huddle, East High's Eddie Ratliff asked the coach if they should shoot the ball or simply hold on to it. Hart told him to shoot. But as soon as play resumed, East was called for yet another dribbling violation, which returned the ball to Libby. Stewart of Libby badly wanted the ball and screamed to a teammate to pass it to him. When he got it, he shot, missed, but was fouled. East High Tiger fans groaned. Stewart, one of the greatest players in the history of his high school, stepped to the free throw line. There were now 49 seconds left. He could tie the score by making his two free throws. He missed the first one, made the second. East 64, Libby 63. East High got the ball. The final seconds ticked off the clock. Eddie Ratliff of East went into the lane and tossed up a soft hook. He missed. Then the ball, suddenly and surprisingly, was back in Toledo Libby's hands. The East players paid special attention to Stewart and Trail, thinking one of them had to take the final shot. Instead, guard Carl Hamm drove down the middle into the forest of East High players, and the force got the best of him. His shot was blocked. Stewart got the ball, nine seconds now on the clock, and shot for the victory. His shot went up, and the Libby star missed. The ball caromed along the left baseline, the noise palpable as a buffalo herd. Libby's Dexter Holloway sprung and grabbed it. With only three seconds left, Holloway threw up a shot. It was soft, it rolled around the rim as if preparing to make up its own mind. Some fans covered their eyes, most did not. Bob Hart, East High's coach, was in a sudden nightmare. The ball toyed along the inside-outside edges of the rim, twisting the hearts of both sets of fans. Finally, and the ball rolled off, no basket. Eddie Ratliff of East High reached for it like a fireman for a baby tossed from a high window. (laughs) Then the clock showed one second, then none. It was all over, but there was silence among the East High followers in the stands as if they were suspending their belief until they were absolutely sure. Their eyes raced to the clock. Then the scoreboard. They had their proof. East High 64, Toledo Libby 63. Still alive by virtue of a single point. So that's a game. And this, uh, you know, and they would go on to win the, uh, state championship. Many of the players at East High School had seen Martin Luther King Jr. when they were six and seven with their own eyes because King had a dear friend at a Columbus, Ohio church by the name of Reverend Fell Hale and he would invite Martin Luther King Jr. into the city often. And so when King went down And as you can imagine, uh, it was a deep wound to these kids who were now 16 and 17 who were athletes at East High School. So the basketball season ends. They win a state championship. And there's this healing process that starts in the city because people now, for the first time in many months, have something to smile about. And then baseball season starts. East High is so poor that they don't even have their, their own baseball field on school, on school grounds. Their baseball field is three quarters of a mile from the school and they have to walk to practice every night. They do not have a dugout, so they use chairs. Uh, and yet they love the game of baseball. And they played against all white teams that had more money and were better financed and had better fields. And yet, they had such talent. Uh, but that talent did not stop them from losing five straight games in the middle of the season. And the coach told them, he said, we have talent on this team. Nobody's coming to your games. Oftentimes, there would be two and three people at the baseball games. Nobody." Nobody cared about the team, it seemed. So this scene right here, it is about the baseball baseball team getting ready to go to another tournament game. You have to win eight games to become state champion, so it's a long, hard trek. And this moment is one of those moments when I wrote it, I said to myself, oh my goodness, if they ever make a movie, and like they did with the butler, this scene has to be in it. Leroy Crozier came out the door at 1152 East Rich Street. It was the early afternoon of May 30th and the Tiger baseball players had gathered their belongings inside their homes in their small apartments in the low-income housing projects. The night before, some of, some of their mothers had washed their uniforms by hand. Some of the players had washed their uniforms themselves. They still had mismatched belts and worn down cleats. Garnett Davis? walked out the door from 1629 Oak Street. Robert Cuthrell from 421 Chatfield. Ernie Locke out the door at 980 Caldwell Place, apartment 21. Phil Mackey said goodbye to his mother at 1447 Fair Avenue. Larry Mann emerged from 1586 Tiffin. Kenny Mizell, exited from 980 Caldwell Place, apartment 24. Roger Neighbor stepped into the daylight from 453 Eldridge. Nora Smith from 216 North Garfield. Richard Twitty from 309 Linwood. Harry Williams from 2483 Brockton Court. Ray Scott from 364 North Garfield. Tony Brown from 1200 Author Place. Ed Ratliff emerged from 1201 Bryden Road, already passing his alcoholic stepfather who was mumbling nonsense. In every one of their homes, on a wall, set the visage of Martin Luther King Jr., dead 13 months now. They were tigers, and they didn't just have an appointment on the north side of the city, they all had a dream. They were going to meet a group of baseball players from Cleveland St. Joseph High School who aimed to stop their journey. And they were intent on not letting that happen. Jack Gibbs, the school principal, met them as they walked onto the Ohio State University baseball field. As they looked at him and then beyond him into the bleachers, they saw a sight they had not seen all season long. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of East High Tigers whistling and yelling and waving pom-poms. Jack Gibbs had corralled a few bus drivers and gathered some students. From the bleachers, that old East High Tiger chant erupted. I went down to the river, oh yeah, and I started to drown, oh yeah. I started thinking about them tigers Oh, yeah. And I came back around. Oh, yeah. And unbelievingly, astonishingly. They would win eight straight games, some of those games by one run in the final inning. It was the kind of stuff that dreams are made of two state championships in the span of 55 days. They had made national history. Bob Hart, who was the basketball coach, he got sick in the mid-90s and told his three daughters, he said, there are other coaches who have been elected to the Ohio State Hall of Fame and not me, he said, I've coached, I've coached championship teams. And he said, I think the reason I'm being ignored is because my teams were all black. He told his daughters, he said, I do not want the honor if it is not given to me before I die. He died and yet, to be inducted into the Ohio Athletic Hall of Fame. Six years later, he finally was. But there is a deeper justice than that because this book is dedicated to, among other people, Coach Bob Hart. Here is sort of a wrap-up. They had the East High basketball team and the baseball team made history. They had gone into neighborhoods where they were not welcome, and they had come out with victories. They had, most of them, missing fathers, and mothers also who were doing their best just to hold on, mothers who were not about to stop insisting on their civil rights. They had brought black and white together in a city still grappling with school segregation. They gave people a reason to look backward, if only to look forward. The dreamer, Martin Luther King Jr., who had walked these very streets, who had paraded down East Broad Street, was now gone. But they had forged on. They were the 1968-69 Mighty Tigers of East High School. And they were among the best America had to offer, even if America didn't quite realize it. They showed America that there was more than one route to Martin Luther King Jr.'s mountaintop.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Will Haygood and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question tonight comes from an audience member wondering how many of the student athletes played on both the basketball and baseball
1: teams. You know, because that was one of the first questions that. I asked Paul Pinnell, uh, who was a baseball coach, because he flat out said to me, he said, he said, two of the hardest sports to play, basketball and baseball, you know, it's hard to go from one to the next. He said it would it, have been easier, football to basketball. But there were three, three players, and there is a photograph of those three players who played on both teams. You know, which is amazing, isn't it? You know, three players. There's a lovely little story. The shortstop was this guy named Roger Neighbors, and um, and uh, Paul Pannell, who's a baseball coach, was also the school monitor, you know, who would stand outside the school at lunchtime to make sure that no kids left school grounds. So one day he saw Roger Neighbors walking back on the school grounds and he was like shocked, like, you know, where has Roger been? And the closer, Roger got, and the coach could see that he had a bag with a red S, which meant that he had been up on Mount Vernon Avenue at this hamburger joint called Sandy's, you know, a dead giveaway. (laughs) So Roger reached the coach and he said, Roger, where, oh, where have you been? And he said, ah, uh, hey, coach, uh, the food up in the cafeteria today was awful. And I just walked up to Sandy's and grabbed lunch. And the coach looked at him and said, Roger, we're in the tournament. We are in the state tournament. He said, and what I'm getting ready to say to you is gonna hurt. He said, but I am teaching about life as well as baseball. Rules are to be obeyed. We have a tournament game today against Bexley High School in Roger you will not be playing. I've got to go inside the school and call your mother and break the awful news to her. No other student and would get a break. I can't give you one. He said, it hurts. And I know if we lose, because we won't have one of our star players, that it's really going to haunt you, but Roger, you have to listen in life. So the East High Tigers went and played in Bexley High School. They won in the seventh inning by one run. Roger stayed back at the school, sitting out back of course, there were no cell phones then. He just had to wait for the, for the cars to show up. And when they did, uh, he sat there quiet, shaking. And the players all walked up to him and they said, Roger, we won. And he hugged them and the players said, now let's go get some Sandy's hamburgers.
0: <laughs> this audience member asks about the hardest part of writing this book.
1: One thing that was hard was this. Usually sports, you know, books that have a sports story, you know, usually it's just one, you know, one sport. You know, it's all football, all basketball, all rowing, all swimming. This book, there were two narratives, you know, two sports, so, I did know a whole lot about basketball, and but baseball, I I knew next to nothing. So I had to read up a lot on baseball, and I remember and I'm going to the library, looking up, you know, <laughs> stories about the games. And, I, and I'm very confused, and I called a coach, and I said, hey, coach, something is wrong. And all of these stories that I read so far about the baseball season, they stop after the seventh inning. And so, where are the other two innings? And the coach said, "Uh, Will, in high school baseball, there are only seven innings. And, you know, and I said, oh, but of course. Okay. You know what I mean? Something as major as that, I did not know the high school baseball was only seven innings and not nine innings. You know, so, you know, it was all the rules of, of that sport, you know, that I had to steep myself in. Like, and then my editor said, and when I handed in one chapter, he said, well, just because a player gets four hits doesn't mean anything. It means something if he gets an RBI, knocks in you know, another player to score. You know, so I had a whole lot to learn about baseball.
0: This question is about what inspired Haygood to write this book.
1: I was 14 years old and on Friday or Saturday I would beg my mother for 50 cents to go to the Fairgrounds Coliseum to see see the East High basketball team play. They were just more than a city, you know, more than a team, you know, and they had like a swagger about them, you know, and they just kept winning and winning. And it was astonishing as a little kid like me to see Ratliff, Ed Ratliff. And I would, I would hang around the hallway and he would walk by, and, and here I was saying, Oh my God, there's Ratliff. Hey, man, look, look Joy, there's Ratliff, there's Ratliff. It was just amazing. And, but listen to this the 1974 first team college All American basketball team, there were five members. 1974, first-team college All-American basketball team. Here are the five. Bill Walton, out of UCLA. Doug Collins, out of Illinois State. David Thompson, out of North Carolina State. That's three players right there. Two positions left. Fourth position, Ed Ratliff. Long Beach State via East High School. The fifth player, Dwight Lamar of the Bushy Afro, University of Southwestern Louisiana via Columbus East High School. They damn near made up half the team. It's amazing. It's never been repeated again. Two players from the same high school who make first-team college All-American. It's an amazing and astonishing feat. Not only that, Ed Ratliff was the co-captain of the 1972 U.S. Olympic team in men's basketball. A phenomenal story. Here's what happened. Uh, I was finishing my last book about Thurgood Marshall. and I had actually handed it in and I was in Columbus visiting family, I was walking down the street one day on the east side of the city, just so happened to be near East High School and I ran into uh, Garnett Davis and he said, "Uh, Will, nobody ever talks about our championship. We won a championship that same year and I said who's we and he said I was on the baseball team man nobody ever talks about the state championship baseball team you know there were you know riots going on that summer there were more uprisings you know Vietnam the war Nixon was winning you know it was just a crazy time nobody paid attention and I said East High won two state championships that year. He said, that's what I'm trying to tell you. They won the basketball championship and then 55 days later, man, we won the baseball championship. And I said, now Garnett, now that sounds far-fetched to me. And he said, look it up, and kept walking. So the next day, I went to the library sat down and got on Microfish and start scrolling. First was the basketball championship. And then I wrote, I kept scrolling, and there it was, June 1st, 1969, it said, East High Tigers beat East Liverpool, claim second state title in 55 day span. And I leaned back in my chair And I just said to myself, literally, I said, now that's a book. (laughs) I I said, that's a book. And so my editor in New York, when he got my manuscript for the Thurgood Marshall book, uh, he called me and he said, hey. And I got the book, Thurgood, I'm getting ready to edit it. So what next? You know, it's always nice to hear your editor ask you that. What next? What next? And I said, uh, well, I'm kind of thinking about a book about Hollywood and how we, how people judge this country by its movies. And my editor said, Well, okay, you know, uh, okay, what else? And then I said, I said, oh, here's something else, Peter, that's his name. I said, here's something else, Peter. There's this all black high school in Columbus, Ohio, in my hometown, Uh, night in the summer of 68, King and Robert F. Kennedy murdered. The school doors open. They have the first black principal. They win a state basketball championship. 55 days later, they win a state baseball championship. Eight of the 12 mothers of the basketball players work as maids in the city then. They send more kids to college than ever before because those kids want to pay homage to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, And it's, that's something else that I'm thinking about. And my editor said, "Uh, well, when are you gonna start working on that book? (laughs) And I said, oh, oh, so Peter, this is a book? And he said, uh, yeah, and then I said, okay, uh, great, great, here's what I'm going to do, like I always do. I'm going to, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to start tomorrow, I'm going to write you a wonderful 20-page book proposal. And I'm uh, and I should be finished with it, I don't know, three to four weeks. And he said, Will, for this book? I don't need a proposal. Just start working on the book. And that's the first book of, he and I have done four books together, and that's the first one where he did not need a book proposal. He just knew. He knew. Bless his heart, he knew. He just knew. This audience member asks how
0: sports and civil rights collide in Haygood's book.
1: You know, the sports just makes it a great story. Drama, yeah. drama, you know. But the subtitle, and originally the book was going to be called Tigerland The Miracle on East Broad Street, where the school is at. And then, and my editor called me and said, Will, The book is about so much more than the miracle of that sports, you know, drama. And so he came up with 1968, 1969, a city divided, a nation torn apart, and a magical season of healing. And so looking at it from that perspective, it does seem so timely. Trump. Has been attacking black athletes for standing up, social activism. 50 years ago, John Carlos and Tommy Smith were at the Olympics raising their hands, their fists for social justice. Uh, and so uh, it's sad to say that the nation now seems extremely divided. Uh, There are racial horrors happening every day. Look at Pittsburgh and that murderous attack upon the synagogue. Uh, Just heartbreaking. Uh, Words matter. And people in this White House are saying all the wrong words. Uh, And there is a moral, um, you know, there is a lack of moral courage coming from the White House. And we have had various presidents who have dealt very valiantly with race. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Lincoln, who famously said a house divided cannot stand. and John F. Kennedy looked into the cameras and said, "Who amongst you would be willing to change seats with someone who is black?" He said that, and you know, and now we have a situation that's just heartbreaking. Uh, and so, I, I I think there's hope. Uh, and I think, I think that these athletes uh, in this story, in the school teachers, in the black and the white school teachers, and the white coaches, uh, you know, teach some very valuable
0: lessons. Another audience member asks how Haygood would feel about his book
1: being adapted into a film. Personally, I think it would be a great five-part miniseries. I mean. How long did uh, Friday Night Lights last? You know, goodness, like five seasons, yeah. you know. You know, what's interesting about those stories, Friday Night Lights and Hoosiers and uh, Remember the Titans, you know, those movies were, they were all about in the trek to the state championship game some of those teams didn't even win. Well, these cats won <laughs> both, you know, both, both times. Basketball and baseball. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really just amazing. Here's what's fascinating, too. Some of the basketball players, when I tracked them down, And they would say, man, I forgot that we also won the baseball championship. (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean? I mean, like nobody hardly went to the baseball games and yet, and yet they won.
0: This question is about if any of the student athletes made it to professional leagues.
1: Yes, yes, another great question. Two of the basketball players went to the pros. Ed Ratliff was with the Houston Rockets for six seasons and I'm on my way to Houston and I'm going to do an event with Ratliff and some of his former teammates who who still live in Houston. And Dwight Lamar played In the ABA American Basketball Association for the San Diego Conquistadors and his coach was Wilt Chamberlain (laughs) and he was a high scorer he played there and he played his last year with the LA Lakers and Garnett Davis who was the catcher and with the baseball team was drafted by the New York Mets uh, and the first baseball player from East High School, uh, who was drafted straight into the pros and he played for the New York Mets for three seasons. Our last question for the night
0: is if Will Haygood was able to track down all the athletes he wrote about.
1: Most of them I did, yes. There was a big event when the book first came out Uh, Goodness, it's, you know, it's just five weeks old in the book. So in my hometown in September, there was a big celebration and the mayor was there. All of the players, many of the players, most of the players from both teams. And Mayor Ginther announced on stage, he said, Parkwood Avenue which is on the east side of the high school he said will forever be known as Tigerland Way <laughs> and there was a um, street sign the following morning and so next time you're in Columbus driving down East Broad Street slow up when you get to East High School and you'll see Tigerland Way thank you very much this is wonderful <laughs>
0: Wraps up our St. Paul Public Library Rondo event with Will Haygood. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with David Grant at Hennepin County Library, Southdale. David Grant is a number one New York Times bestselling author, best known for the nonfiction page turners The Lost City of Zed and The Devil and Sherlock Holmes. His latest, The White Darkness, tells the story of a latter day Antarctic adventurer eager to recreate the fame exploits of explorer Ernest Shackleton. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made two. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.